message is on uh, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Um, <clears throat> a question that might arise is uh, why these verses now? Um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And it just seems that, uh, um, well, okay, I am a supporter of a college football team that is not doing well, okay? And uh, when you're in those seasons, these are the things the coaches say. And I was a, a high school coach years ago, and I would say these things. Sometimes you got to go back to the basics. You got to work on the fundamentals. You got to refocus. You got to reevaluate um, what is it that's most important and how do we do those things that are like real foundational. And so it's kind of in that spirit that uh, I wanted to go to these verses today. We are in a period of transition here, and so this is good timing for us to go back to some of the things that matter most and reevaluate. Um, the thing I hate about that type of process is it always requires some personal reflection, and uh, I'd kind of rather just cruise along as fast as I can and not have to slow down and do all that hard personal reflection stuff. Um, but that's where we're at, and that's what we'll work on doing today. Uh, 1990. I know some of you weren't born yet, but there was a famous tennis player named Andre Agassi. Uh, he turned out to be you know, one of the greats, all-time tennis professionals. But in 1990, he was a, a kid on the tennis scene. Um, <clears throat> he was brash. He was outspoken. And in professional tennis, if you're familiar with, with that world at all, it's very buttoned up. You know, the most famous of tennis tournaments is Wimbledon in England, and they have to wear all white. And so just gives you a little indicator of that world. And he didn't fit the mold at all. Um, long hair and gold chains and said whatever he wanted to say, he said. Um, the Canon uh, company, Canon Camera, had a... a was manufacturing a new line of cameras called The Rebel. The Rebel. Guess who they got to be their spokesperson for their marketing campaign? Andre Agassi, The Rebel. And the tagline on that, uh, on that whole marketing campaign was, Image is everything. You know, so they got him making these tennis shots and uh, being the fashion icon and all of those kind of things. And then, uh, you know, click, click, click with the camera and image is everything. And if you're a camera company and taking pictures is what you do, then that's true. Image is everything, right? Nobody wants to buy cameras that are poor at capturing images. But... If you're like uh, something else besides a camera, um, then that's just not that true. Uh, if you're like, say, a person, image is not everything. Um, so Andre Agassi in 1990 was doing commercials saying image is everything, and he hadn't really won anything. 
Later on, in 1992, he won his first Wimbledon championship and went on to win a whole bunch of things and became a great, great tennis player. But at the time, when he was making millions off the marketing campaigns and stuff, he hadn't really won anything uh, major yet. And so there was, he got a lot of flack about this image campaign. Um, <clears throat> Our passage today comes from the famous Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' longest recorded message or teaching. Um, The entire message turned conventional understandings of religion, just turned it totally upside down. I'm going to move this so I can see you folks on the left a little better. Um, Turned... Conventional understandings of religion completely upside down. Um, and that's part of what he does in these verses. He takes our, well, our, I guess, but their understanding of how you follow God and the things you're supposed to do, and he exposes some things and then shows the pathway to how it's really meant to be. Um, like I said, probably an appropriate time for us to do that. Uh, so to understand this Sermon on the Mount that our verses are a part of, I want to go back to uh, earlier in that, in that message and start with Matthew 5.20. Here's what Jesus says. I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, that statement would have been uh, uh, shocking to everybody in Jesus' day. So wait a second. These are the top shelf people. These are the ones who know all the verses. They've memorized all the laws. They're experts. They're the ones who judge if you've done it right or not. Um, And you're saying that I got to be more righteous than them, or you can just forget about it. You're out of the club, you won't go to heaven, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Sounds like terrible, terrible news. Um, We need to work on our understanding of righteousness. And I think that's part of what Jesus was doing, and then for sure part of what Paul was doing in the New Testament was... Uh, and that's part of how the whole religious understanding got turned upside down by Jesus, Uh, righteousness was not and is not this set of things you do in order to please God. If you understand being righteous as doing the right stuff, then then you've got it wrong. Um, That's just not how the Bible defines righteousness. Um, a better understanding of righteousness, an accurate understanding, is right standing with God. So it's not about doing the right stuff, or I shouldn't say it's not about that. Obviously, that becomes part of the story. But <clears throat> that's not how it's defined. Righteousness is defined about being rightly related to God, having right standing with him. It means that he's pleased with you. When you're righteous, when you've been made righteous by God, 
there's nothing more you have to do. There's not a set of right things you need to accomplish in order to seal that or make it more true or something. And the other side of it's true too. If God has made you righteous, there's not some set of things you can do that unravels that. So praise the Lord for that, right? Once we have been made righteous with him, that's that. He decides it. Um, When Jesus went to the cross and died on the cross for us, um, that's what that was about, to create a pathway for us to have relationship with God. And Jesus did something that none of us could have done for ourselves. He took on the penalty for our sin. And because of that, sin doesn't stand between us and God. Um, when you think of righteousness in terms of doing, when you think of it in terms of uh, um, achieving or behaving, it sets up this, this system of hiding or hiddenness because all of us have this sense, I sh- could do more. I could be better, right? None of us walks around without that. We all know that we're not uh, where we could be, especially if we're talking about these kind of things. Righteousness implies a, a, a holiness or a completeness, and I know I'm not there. Um, well, if I understand righteousness in that first way, then I kind of have to put on a mask. Otherwise, everybody will realize what's really going on, and uh, you know, I won't measure up. It creates a system of hiding and masking. It uh, uh, strikes against vulnerability and transparency. But if you know that God has made you righteous, then we can say, hey, welcome to the club of people that really need Jesus. Welcome to this club of messed up people like me. Matthew 5.20, you need to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Um, If you understand righteousness the way Jesus taught it, you can make sense of that verse. Okay, getting back into our own own text here. Um, Our text examines three different types of religious activity. Let's start, and I think you're going to notice the repetition. It's real obvious. Um, Verse 1. Watch out, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. So it's about three types of good deeds, giving, praying, and fasting. And I think they're used uh, as an example for all the good deeds, all the Christian disciplines, all these things. Start with the giving. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they've received all the reward they'll ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. 
Um, there's a do and a consequence, or excuse me, a don't, and a consequence that goes along with, with uh, that. And there's a do and a consequence that goes along with that. The don't, pretty obvious. Don't draw attention to yourself, right? Trumpets, ceremonies, name on the building. So when you give, if you've got uh, a lot to give, and you give in such a way that they hold a special event in your honor, and your name goes on the, you know, it gets etched in the concrete above the pillars... Well, that's really cool and everything, but when that name gets etched in there, that's the end of it. That's your reward. <clears throat> when, I was, uh, um, when I was in eighth grade, uh, I had a good friend who uh, invited me to come to his church, and um, it was a church unlike, I'd never had any experience like that in all my life, um, and before or since. But when it came time to take the offering, you know, in my church, we passed the plate and, you know, did all, there's music or something like that. Um, but in his church, uh, the plate was on the altar. And starting with the front row, the, the two sides would come and, you know, stand up, walk to the front and drop their thing in the altar and then go back and around. And row by row, everybody came to the front. And while they're doing that, you know, the, the pastor on stage was watching and saying, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. You know, as offerings were dropped in the plate. And to, you know, that seemed, well, at least to my experience, it seemed weird. You know, I'd never known anything like that. But what seemed even more shocking to me was when all the rows had gone, we did it again. And we did it again. And we did it again. Um, you know, it was like, and with each new round, there was more exhortation and the Lord is worthy and come and give all you have and be committed and and when you give, there's a do here. Give privately. Give privately. So much so that your left hand stays in your pocket while your right hand sneaks the funds out and, and into the plate. Give privately. Um, the reward, if you do it that way, it says... The reward comes from God, because he's the only one that sees it. And so the question that arises, I'm maybe jumping to the end too soon, but the question that arises is, why am I giving? And to be seen by whom? What is this really about anyway? Um, Praying, verses 5 through 8. Let's take that next section. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they'll ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Then your father, who sees everything, will reward you. 
There's a do, or excuse me, a don't and a consequence, a do and a consequence. Don't draw attention to yourself. The street corners, the church podiums, lengthy and theologically well-crafted prayers. There's a don't. Martin Luther once said, uh, uh, long public prayer is typically an indicator of short private prayer. Sounds a little judgy, but, uh, but, but maybe spot on, right? Um, <clears throat> if you do it for attention, again, attention is your only reward. The do, pray privately. Go to your prayer closet. And if you do, the Father, who even knows what happens in closets, then he'll be the one who rewards you. The Father who hears prayers that are said silently. The Father that hears the desperate cry when it's not even a prayer time. He's the one whose reward you want. Um, the bre- best prayer times in my life, I think, are when I've, uh, uh, when we lived in Montana. We lived in this tiny town, the northwest corner. And uh, uh, it was in the mountains, and they had these abandoned logging roads uh, where they'd used years and years ago uh, for logging. And you could go up there and go for a walk and not hear anything. You know, no traffic sounds, no, no people sounds, just the breeze in the trees, and that's it. And how I prayed during those walks, um, was nobody was ever going to know whether it was loud or quiet, whether it was singing, whether it was anger. None of those things were ever going to be known. And that was a, one of the richest times I've ever had in my walk with God, those prayers, because I couldn't, I couldn't make a way for them to ever be more private than that. Um, Now, I'm skipping some verses, a little confession here. We're going to skip all the way down to verse 16. And I'm skipping, you know, this is kind of important, the whole part about the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven. That's a pretty big deal in in the Bible, those those verses. But here I'm just zipping right over them. Um, What I really am aiming to show is these three parts, giving, praying, fasting, and how Jesus says the same thing about all three of them. And so the part about here's how you do it with the prayer, I'm, I'm glossing over that. But it's ironic to me that the Lord's Prayer is something we do in public. It's something that's learned and memorized and recited as a large group, um, when it's in the middle of this section that talks about that talks about praying in private, um, so there's a little bit of uh, of irony there. Um, I think when the Lord says, "Here's how you pray," He isn't meaning to say, "Here's the script, follow this." I think what He's meaning is that here's a way. That you can here, here's a template, here's a, a example, and this is a relational thing. This is a relational kind of thing, and if it's not, 
then what are you doing on the floor of your closet saying these verses? If it's not about communicating with God, then it doesn't really make any sense. Oh, except in religious ceremonies. And I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at, is religious ceremony. Verses 16 through 18 about fasting. Let's, let's read those. When you fast, don't make it obvious, as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face. By the way, the only place in the Bible where it says that, to comb your hair. Okay, just a little tidbit, just a little tidbit. Then no one will notice that you're fasting except your father who knows what you do in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you. So fasting. In uh, uh, Old Testament times and some of the, the more extreme Jewish leaders would do the same in Jesus' day, uh, tear their robes um, and, and sit in ashes and put ashes on their face. And it was a sign of uh, extreme mourning, uh, but also a time of, uh, 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 a time of extreme like um, self-debasement. Uh, so, oh, Lord, I am so low, you know? And, and again, ironic, right? That you do something publicly to show how, you know, low you are as a way of having people think highly of you. Uh, doesn't make a lot of sense, but um, that was the way. And if we're honest, we can probably relate to it in some ways. Um, when you fast, when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face, and no one will notice that notice word is used in all three of those sections. You know, uh, <clears throat> the NIV uses to be seen by men, to be seen. Um, my giving, my praying, my fasting. Who is it for? What is it about? Some re-examining of the heart is certainly relevant here. <clears throat> I want to get to the end here, some uh, uh, three what I think are themes in these little sections that are worth our attention. Hypocrisy. Um, All through the Bible, hypocrisy is very directly addressed, and certainly here. Um, Samuel said to Saul, what's more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice. In other words, leave me alone with this religious ritual stuff and follow God with your, with your true heart. In Micah, Micah 6, it says, What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? And the, what he's trying to illustrate is there isn't enough religious activity in all the world to earn God's favor and to cover our sin. You just can't ever do it. 
And when you do your your, uh, good deeds with those kind of motives, uh, you lose out on the blessing that God is offering. Um, Jesus was a bit of a revolutionary. Uh, People commonly think of Jesus as the good teacher, and he was addressed often as teacher. But you know what his, his reputation was? The way people thought of him in his day, they thought of him as friend of sinners. And that's the criticism he got, was that he hung out with the wrong people. Wrong, quote-unquote, people. Uh, and so Jesus had all these interactions with the religious leaders that went kind of like this. You brood of vipers. He called them a bunch of snakes. Um, you're like whitewashed tombs. Okay? Uh, on the outside, it's beautiful. On the inside, dead bones. You're like a cup on the shelf. It looks beautiful until you take it down and realize that somebody left a half a cup of milk in there. Jesus' conflicts were always with the religious leaders. And here, three times he says, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. And, you know, in chapter 5, verse 20, he had already said, you need to be more righteous than these guys. And now he says, hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. Jesus is calling them out, and he's taken the common way that religious was, religion was practiced in his day and turning it all upside down. We've got it all wrong. Now, you know, I trust that here at Grace Church, we don't have it all wrong, and it doesn't need to all be turned upside down. That's not what I'm trying to get at. But it's a good time for us to self-examine. It's a good time. Religious activity, you can't use the disciplines to measure where you and others are at with God. Well, I've been reading my Bible every day, real consistently. I prayed. I went to the prayer meeting. It lasted two hours. Yep, I was there for the whole thing. (laughs) You You can't use that to measure. Because where I'm at with the Lord, you know, his closeness to me, he doesn't look at that and say, whoa, Howland, man, he's got something going there. You know, he's not giving out uh, ribbons for, for that kind of prayer meeting attendance. His favor is because of what Jesus did, not because of what I did. He's also not giving out some sort of demerits for non-attendance. The Father. The Father sees what is done in secret. Psalm 139, uh, it says, well, you know, I didn't write that on my sheet, what that says. Um, So much for that. (laughs) (laughs) Psalm 139, um, it talks about how God sees us and God knows us. And I think it's verse 17, but somewhere in there, it says that even the dark is not dark to you. You know, whether I go to this end or that end of the earth, even if I try to hide in the darkness, God sees. God sees. And then rewards. Our Father rewards. 
Okay. We're talking about this whole thing not being based on uh, performance, right? So how do you understand rewards? In uh, Hebrews 11, it uses this phrase, or this, uh, this description. It's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. God's reward system depends on faith, on trusting him. Um, See, if you go in your closet, if you give in secret, if you fast with your hair combed, then you have to trust that God's the one that's going to see it. You have to trust that God cares about that stuff. You have to trust that God uh, uh, is the rewarder because you're not getting it from anywhere else. And so it depends on faith. Let's finish with Matthew 6.33. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Live righteously. Live by doing all the right things. It's okay to do good things, but no, live in a right relationship with God. Live according to the righteousness he's given you. And then you won't be able to stop from pleasing God. Righteousness comes by faith. And I think this is a good time for us to reorient our own personal understanding of what God wants from us. And if that kind of happens all over this church body with a bunch of people uh, reevaluating and saying, uh, how do I please God anyway? Then there'll be a ripple effect of loving one another that happens here and is transformative. Not just personally, but broadly transformative. Um, Let's pray. We want to say thank you, Lord, um, for what you did for us at the cross. And I just know there's some who uh, uh, need to go back and be thankful again for what you did for them at the cross. Um, I guess that's all of us. And so we just want to acknowledge your work on the cross is our only way of being righteous. And so we want to live a kind of pure-hearted way in all the things we do, especially the religious things we do. We want to live in a pure-hearted way. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would uh, uh, help us on that path, that you'd weed out the hypocrisy even when that's hard, that you'd help us be honest, and you'd help us to be the kind of people that are safe for others to be honest with. Uh, Lord, for all these things, we trust you. In Jesus' name.